Oh no, oh Jesus no. In a flash, he's down on all fours, picking through the debris. He rescues several of the larger pieces of glass, brings them back to the coffee table, lays them out one by one, and begins picking and scratching at them with the scraper. Let's see, let's see, he mumbles to himself as he maneuvers frantically over each shard. Again, his joints and hands and limbs seem animated not by life but by strings pulling and tugging him, furiously, meticulously, through a marionette's pantomime of a fevered prospector scrabbling through his pan for flecks of gold. Mark finds no gold. He puts down the scraper, the bits of glass, and his movements come to a halt. He collapses back into the couch where I can practically see the strings that held him aloft now glide down around him. The bag is empty and it's 6 a.m., We've been at it for six days and five nights, and all the other stems are destroyed. Morning glows behind the drawn blinds. Minutes pass, and nothing but the low whine of the garbage trucks outside cuts the quiet. My neck throbs, and the muscles in my shoulder feel thick and tight. The throbbing keeps time with my heart, which slams in my chest like an angry fist. I can't stop my body from rocking. I watch Mark get up to begin sweeping the glass and notice how his body rocks with mine, how our sway is synchronized, like two underwater weeds bending to the same current, and am both horrified and comforted to recognize how alike we are in the desolate crash that follows when the drugs run out. The creeping horror of these past few weeks, relapsing, leaving Noah, my boyfriend, at the Sundance Film Festival nearly a week early, emailing my business partner, Kate, and letting her know that she can do what she wants with our business, that I'm not coming back, checking in and out of a rehab in New Canaan, Connecticut, spending a string of nights at the 60 Thompson Hotel, and then diving into the gritty crackscape of Mark's apartment with the drifters there who latch on to the free drugs that come with someone on a bender. The awful footage of my near history flashes behind my eyes, just as the clear future of not having a bag and knowing another won't be had for hours rises up, sharp as the new day. I don't know yet that I will push through these grim, jittery hours until evening, when Happy will turn his cell phone back on and deliver more. I don't yet know that I will keep this going, here and in other places like it, for over a month, that I will lose almost 40 pounds, so that, at 34, I will weigh less than I did in the 8th grade. It's also too soon to see the new locks on my office door. Kate will change them after she discovers I have come in at night. This will be weeks from now. She'll worry that I might steal things to pay for drugs but I'll go there only to sit at my desk a few more times, to say goodbye to the part of me that, on the surface, anyway, had worked the best. Through the large open window behind my desk, I'll look out at the Empire State Building, with its weary authority and shoulders of colored light. The city will seem different then, less mine, farther away, and Broadway, ten stories below, will be empty, a dark canyon of gray and black stretching north from 26th Street to Times Square. On one of those nights, before the locks are changed, I'll climb up into the window and dangle my feet, scooch close to the edge and hover there in the cold February air for what seems like hours. I'll crawl down, sit at the desk again, and get high. I'll remember how excited everyone was when we opened nearly five years before. Kate, the staff, our families. My clients, novelists, poets, essayists, short story writers, came with me from the old literary agency, the place where I'd started as an assistant when I first came to New York. They came with me, and there was so much faith in what lay ahead, so much faith in me. I'll stare at all the contracts and memos and galleys piled on my desk and marvel that I once had something to do with these things, those people, that I had been counted on. On Mark's couch, I watch my leg shake and wonder if there is a Xanax in his medicine cabinet. I wonder if I should leave and find a hotel. 
I have with me my passport, the clothes on my back, a cash card, and the black New York City Parks and Recreation Department cap I recently found in the back of a cab, the one with the green maple leaf stitched on the front. There is still money in my checking account, almost 40 grand. I wonder how I've made it this far, how by some unwanted miracle my heart hasn't stopped. Mark is shouting from the kitchen, but I don't hear what he's saying. My cell phone rings, but it is buried under a pile of blankets and sheets in the next room, and I don't hear that either. I'll find it later, the voicemail full of terrified calls from friends and family and Noah. I'll listen to the beginning of one and erase it along with the rest. I won't hear the tumble of the new locks on the door of the apartment where Noah and I have lived for eight years, how the sound has changed from a bright pop to a low click as the bolt flies free while his hand turns the new key for the first time. I can't hear any of this. Cannot feel any of these things that have happened or are about to as the construction that was my life dismantles. Locked.